right, we've got three stories from Curiosity.com to help you get smarter in just a few minutes. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why there's a good chance your earliest memories are fake, what Google says makes a great boss, and a marketing company that tried to put a giant billboard in space in the 90s. Let's satisfy some curiosity. Cody, what's your earliest memory? I think it's in my great-grandmother's backyard and there's box elder bugs everywhere. Wow. Because I've always had this terror of box elder bugs. Box elder bugs? Yeah. I have no idea what those are. They're black and they've got red cracks on the back. Oh. They're very distinct looking and they were all over the backyard and I was terrified of them. Yeah. Even though they're apparently they don't bite or anything. They're they're super docile. Doesn't matter when you're really little. Yeah. I had similar <laughs> things. How old were you? I want to say about two. All right. Maybe like one and a half, two years old. It feels like. Yeah. How about you? My earliest memory, I think, was around the same age. And I was playing with this giant stuffed dog that someone had won for me at a carnival. And I was in the hallway of my family's house and the walls were orange and I was pulling the felt nose off of this dog. That is my earliest memory. Wow. But a new study says there's a good chance that both of these memories we just mentioned might be fake. The earliest memory might be fake? Yes. Wow. And since we'll be talking about your earliest memories, this story should also answer a question from our listener, Fernando, on Twitter. Fernando wanted to know, why can't we remember things from a very early age? Great question, Fernando. We're glad you asked. Let's talk memories. According to all known research, it's most likely impossible for the human brain to retain memories from the first couple years of life. That's because of how the mature brain encodes and stores memories. So the first category of memories are known as non-declarative or implicit things like motor or language skills. They live in various parts of the brain and exist as something you can demonstrate as an ability rather than state as a fact. Then there are declarative or explicit memories. These are the facts we learned or stories of things that happened in our lives. These are stored in the hippocampus. Sometimes a person who has sustained an injury to their hippocampus will lose memories from their past or lose the ability to create new memories, like in the movie Memento. But even people with anterograde amnesia caused by that damage will still be able to remember how to ride a bicycle or tie a shoelace. Well, the thing about a toddler's hippocampus is that it's growing fast. Memories might be written on them, but they're also quickly written over and pushed aside. That's why growing children have poor memories. According to one study, babies of up to two months can only hang on to a memory for one day. And by the time they're a year and a half old, their memories can go back about 13 weeks. So to answer Fernando's question, we don't have early memories because our brains are writing over our memories repeatedly. That brings us to this study out of the University of London. They surveyed more than 6,600 participants, and a full 40% of respondents reported that their earliest memories dated back to age two or younger. So how is that possible? Well, children's brains are notably easy to influence. According to the study's authors, these memories are probably fake. And that's likely due to people hearing stories of their early, early childhood repeated over and over again for the entire time that they grew up. The first time you hear the story, it feels like learning something new. But by the 12th time you hear it, you might feel like you remember the event itself and not just the retelling. So don't be so sure if you think you remember something from when you were six months old. It's disturbingly easy to implant a memory into a person's head. Ashley, what's the ugliest piece of advertising you've ever seen? There's so many to choose from. What about you? I don't know if it's ugly, but it bothers me when a podcast logo has a microphone on it. <laughs> Unless it's about podcasting. It's like, right. okay, I know I'm listening to a podcast. It's like a TV show having a TV on it. Like. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, do blogs have a picture of a book or a magazine in their right, logo? Right. It's the only format. 
drives me up the wall. But those are just minor nuisances, right? When does advertising go too far? Chances are you've crossed the line when you've launched a one kilometer billboard into orbit around the Earth. And today you learn how one marketing company almost did that 25 years ago. A company appropriately called Space Marketing Inc. proposed the idea of launching a giant Mylar billboard into space in 1993. By giant, we mean one square kilometer, and the Mylar film would be illuminated through solar lights. It would cost an estimated $25 million, including launch and materials. The plan was to have the billboard orbit our planet at about 150 miles above land. Aside from the exorbitant cost, it had one pretty glaring problem. Space debris would destroy it pretty much immediately. But because of the amount of buzz this idea generated, the U.S. Senate actually introduced and passed a bill that banned the Transportation Department from allowing the launch of a rocket that would be used to implement intrusive space advertising. So why are we telling you this? Well, because space advertising might be making a comeback. A Japanese startup called iSpace, Inc. has proposed selling ad space on rockets and spacecraft that would eventually plaster the surface of the moon with advertising projections. You won't be able to see the ads on the moon with the naked eye, fortunately, but iSpace wants to plaster rovers and other space equipment with ads on the moon. They're hoping to use initial deals for two unmanned moon missions by 2020. Based on international law right now, they're within legal rights to do this as long as they don't cause some sort of debris problem with their plan. We'll keep you posted on any developments, but you can also keep your eye glued to your telescope at home. Things could get interesting. Cody, what's the number one quality you look for in like a good boss? Treating everything as an opportunity and not an opportunity for punitive measures. Yeah, that's a good one. Like if something bad happens, supporting that person and being like, hey, here's how we could do this better next time and how it could help the company rather than why would you do this? I'm going to hurt you. Yeah, I'm obsessed with feedback. I just thrive on feedback. Doesn't matter if it's good feedback, bad feedback. I just want to know where I stand and how I'm doing. Like wow. that's huge for me. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm not your boss, but I think you're doing a great job on the oh, podcast. Well, thank you, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen up, supervisors. Google has released a new study on what it takes to be a great boss. And it's full of important lessons for anyone who leads or who's looking for a leader. This 10-year study began in 2008, codenamed Project Oxygen and it resulted in the 10 behaviors of a great boss. Ready to take notes? Okay, here goes. A great boss is a good coach who uses problems as a learning experience rather than solving problems for the team. A great boss empowers the team and doesn't micromanage and creates an inclusive team environment. That's where peers offer supportive criticism and where nobody feels embarrassed to try an idea or take a risk. A great boss is also a great communicator who praises things when done well and does that often. They're also productive and results-oriented and support career development, and can discuss performance. It's also important for a great boss to have the ability to collaborate within the company and a clear vision and strategy for the team. They should also have key technical skills to advise the team, meaning it's best if the boss has been in a team's shoes before. For example, if you're a boss at an IT company, then you should have extensive IT knowledge. And finally, a great boss is a strong decision maker. Gotta be able to make those tough decisions. You can read more details about all of these skills today on Curiosity.com and on the Curiosity app for Android and iOS. And if you've got a boss you think might have some room for improvement, then maybe share the story on LinkedIn or Twitter. You never know. Maybe they'll pick up the hint. Join us again tomorrow for the Curiosity Daily and learn something new in just a few minutes. I'm Ashley Hamer. And I'm Cody Goff. Stay curious. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.